0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad today because I'm bringing you a special guest, Mr. Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson is a mobile home park investment expert. Yes, we're going to be talking about mobile home parks today. They're such a unique asset class, and we're gonna talk about how Jefferson operates, acquires, finances. Funds and everything just around mobile home parks. So, Jefferson is a self made millionaire mobile home park investment expert, educator, and industry consultant. Jefferson's company owns 17 mobile home parks across the country, totaling over $32 million in value. Prior to co founding Park Street Partners in 2013, Jefferson spent seven years investing his own capital, acquiring and operating mobile home parks. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, today I welcome on the show, Mr. Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson, hey, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Hey, Jacob, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show
1: pleasure is ours. Well, hey, Jefferson, for the audience members that don't know you yet, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got started in the world of real estate investing and just your journey up to this point?
2: Yeah, well, I'll try and keep it brief, but uh, I'm a happily married guy with three great kids dialing back the clock. I don't know, almost uh, 12 years ago or so, I started thinking about getting out of the stock market. Uh, I had been working in high tech and so I had gone through the dot com boom and bust and kind of came out of that thinking. Uh, to the extent personal finances, black and white, it's not quite, but basically that Warren Buffett was right and value investing was going to be what was right for me and the best way to really build long-term wealth. And so that then in turn led me into real estate. And I started initially, again, about 12 years ago, thinking I would buy an apartment building. I don't even think, never really considered mobile home parks. I just thought I'll buy an apartment building, put a new roof on it, put some new kitchens in it, make it better for tenants, bump the rents, make it better for me. And then... And just in being on websites like LoopNet, which is basically an, an MLS type website for commercial property, just filtering for multifamily, I would see a bunch of apartment buildings, but an eight cap. And again, this was pricing 12 years ago. And then there'd be one mobile home park at like a 10 cap. And I initially thought, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' trailer park. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'd delete the search result and do it again in Lubbock, Texas or Peoria, Illinois or Omaha, Nebraska, on and on. And I kept getting hit over the Head with this sort of one in a hundred niche within the broader multifamily world. Again, there are probably at least a hundred apartment buildings out there for sale for every one mobile home park. These are very hard to find. But anyway, I just kind of stumbled upon it and began researching it and then discovered why it's such a compelling niche. So it was part art, so to speak, part science, part dumb luck, part plan. I, <laughs> I was looking for a real estate investment that was multifamily and stumbled onto this niche.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And being from Oklahoma, I kind of take for granted no knowing what a mobile home park is, right? And obviously, you are well in tune as to what a mobile home park is. But I have to guess that there are some people in our country that maybe have never seen a mobile home park or don't really understand what exactly it is. So backing up really quickly, just kind of describe a mobile home park, what one typically looks like in your investment portfolio.
2: Yeah, so probably nicer than most people think when they think mobile home park. Unfortunately, it is the very worst of the mobile home parks that tend to set the image, if you will, for the industry. Frankly, the average parks and the nicer parks where nothing happens, all the rent comes in and the kids are playing in their tricycles. And there's actually a pool, a clubhouse. That's not newsworthy. So almost the only time you you hear mobile home parks on the news or really learn about them is when, unfortunately, there's been some sort of illegal activity or a tornado
1: <laughs> hey, from Oklahoma I recognize that
2: certainly so we're selling uh, homes to really indeed somewhat generally somewhat below average income folks. Uh, typically, they're making around 35000 a year household. And I think the average national household is a little over 50. But these folks aren't poor. They aren't criminals. They don't get the reputation that they do deserve. They get one because the media, unfortunately, only covers this niche when something bad happens. But um, yeah, we've got parks with, again, with pools and clubhouses, not all of them, but, uh, but a few. And most of our folks own their own homes. And then we'll bring in other homes and put them out on rent to own agreements or work with an originator to originate a proper mortgage. But either way, we're selling homes. We're helping folks get out of the game of paying rent forever. Almost always they can come be on a home ownership path with us for one or two hundred dollars less than what they would otherwise pay for an apartment building in that market. And who knows, five or at most 15 years down the road, they're gonna own their own house and they're gonna be done at least paying rent on the structure. Presumably, they'll stick around and keep paying us lot rent, but that's their choice. We build communities of owners and we help folks get out of the game of paying rent forever in in the traditional multifamily world.
1: That's great. And I have to admit that mobile home parks are probably the most interesting real estate class, in my opinion, in all of real estate investing. When you're looking at single families versus multifamilies, small and large multifamilies, self-storage, raw land, etc. Mobile home parks are really interesting and a bit misunderstood. And they really do serve purpose in our country, right? Because we have a problem with affordable housing and any new construction typically isn't affordable to that lower income family, right? And even home owning is almost becoming less and less common in today's society. So these mobile home parks are really serving an important purpose in our nation's economy. So talk about that. What do you see there?
2: They do. Most folks don't realize that approximately 10% of all Americans live in a manufactured home.
1: Wow, that's higher than I thought or would have guessed.
2: It's not all in mobile home parks. I think about half of that is folks in mobile homes, in mobile home parks. The other half is folks that'll buy a mobile home and move it to their own land, all that a land home package. But uh, either way, whether you own your own land or not, buying a manufactured house is a heck of a lot cheaper than doing site-built construction the traditional way. Most brand new mobile homes would run anywhere. Well, it could be as little as 20, let's say $25 a foot to construct. Really nice ones would probably be in the 50 to 60.
1: That's per square feet when you're talking about mobile homes.
2: Yeah. Whereas I think most site-built construction probably starts in the $50 or $60 range and easily gets up, I think, more towards 100 a foot. Yeah. So this really is a path forward for affordable housing. Again, whether someone's in a mobile home park or putting that mobile home on their own land.
1: Yeah, sure. So kind of rewinding the clock, like you were talking about earlier, when you're surfing LoopNep and just looking for these commercial multifamily properties, every now and then you're seeing this mobile home come across your plate and then another mobile home here or there, and they're offering these higher returns. How long did it take for you to kind of catch on and say, okay, let me look at these mobile homes. What was your mindset there? What were you looking at? How long did it take you to come to this conclusion that mobile home parks might be a asset class worth exploring more?
2: Yeah, I'd probably be embarrassed to tell you how many times (laughs) I hit over the head with mobile home parks and kept saying, no, I am not friggin' buying a mobile home. I don't know. It was five or 10 search results before I finally started looking into it. And what I discovered makes it compelling is uh, a couple of key things. There are a number, but I'll just highlight. First, again, almost all our residents own their own homes. So that means they own their own leaky toilets and leaky roofs. And frankly, when you're a homeowner, you tend to take much better care of your toilet and your roof. And so it's really a win-win. We don't have to maintain that infrastructure. Tenants do, but it doesn't cost them anywhere near what it would cost us. Proverbial leaky toilet that needs a $12 flap is gonna be a $150 bill for me to get a plumber in there to replace that $12 flap, whereas the tenant can just do it for $12. So we are more than happy to, again, help folks become homeowners. Yes, they'll have that repair and maintenance, but again, the repair and maintenance is a lot lower lower when you're giving folks a path to home ownership. They're going to behave more, almost always, behave more responsibly. That's one of the key things. And another key thing is that, frankly, unfortunately, despite government politicians on both sides of the aisles talking and talking and talking about the importance of affordable housing, the fact of the matter is that over the last 30 to 40 years, pretty much a city or county government has outlawed any new mobile home park construction. These people that get, frankly, have the skills and the interest to run a political campaign and get elected to their local city or county government almost certainly are at least middle class, maybe upper middle class. Virtually none of those folks that get elected come out of mobile home parks or apartment buildings or anything that really serves the lower 30%, 40% of income earners. So these elected officials really don't understand mobile home parks. They don't like them. They've only heard about them from the news. So again, it's affecting illegal to build any more mobile home parks. They've either changed the zoning density allowable or the improvements that you have to bring in and then leave a certain amount of space to be open for parkland. I mean, they can talk out of both sides of their mouth. They can say, oh, it's still legal to build a mobile home park. But again, <laughs> not by easy by changing the density, other regulations, the amount of improvements, it's no longer affordable. And so they're just not being built anymore. Anyway, so those are two key things, the lower repair and maintenance budget and the limited competition. We certainly do have competition in the industry, but we're not likely to ever have more competition because it's just not legal to build these in anything that resembles an affordable manner the way they were, say, prior to the 1970s. Anyway, so those couple of things struck me as being a particularly good thing to invest in. And I then just started putting the word out there to folks of what I was thinking of doing. I live here in San Francisco, where real estate typically costs $1,000 a foot or more. Man, yeah. (laughs) We're near $25 a foot in San Francisco. I got a lot of strange looks, Jacob, but I did get a couple of folks then that would say things like, like one guy from my church just said, Oh, you know, my dad used to own a park, and that was what sent us on a nice vacation to Europe every summer. Here's my dad's number, give him a call. I ended up building up an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys that were all park owners. And then I just started running deals past them, and they'd give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. tell me why they liked it or not. So it was a great way to learn to build up that, uh, again, that advisory board to have some mentors that had been there and done that to help me get there and do that.
1: (laughs) Now, one thing I want to pull out of kind of what you were talking about with this uh, supply demand constraint, we're talking about, yeah, the demand's there. There's a need for affordable housing in our country. And on the supply side, governments, local municipalities are making it very difficult to build new parks. And you know, I know that every year we lose X amount of parks right and not enough for being rebuilt. So the supply is dwindling and not growing, whereas the demand is staying steady, if not increasing. So we're seeing a real need for this asset class here, creating a good investment opportunity for investors like yourself.
2: That's correct. Yeah, good supply and demand balance.
1: So let's kind of dig into the business model here and talk about how exactly does this look like? Because it's significantly different than just buying an apartment, like you said, putting in new kitchens and putting on new roofs and improving the rents and increasing the cash flow and refinancing it in year three or five and having a five-year business model. What does it look like in mobile home parks? Because my understanding is you kind of have two components. You have the lots, right? The land, the infrastructure, the driveways, and then you've got the mobile homes. And sometimes those are in the same, I guess, like investment transaction and that's other times they're not. So kind of walk us through that.
2: The mobile homes are not real estate. They are wheel estate, as I colloquially call it. Most people may not know this, but mobile homes actually have a VIN number, exactly the same way your automobile does. And title, other than in California, which is a crazy state in many ways, but other than in California, title trades through your local state's DMV, just like a car. So it's chattel financing, and and you get it financed, again, just the same way you might have a car or a jet ski or or other chattel finance. We tend to buy i'm guessing five percent of the houses, maybe ten with a typical transaction with us, so again we're usually buying a community where almost all the homes are owned by the residents. but life happens, and some of those tenants are irresponsible, not most, but you kind of always do seem to have one or two houses out of a hundred that get abandoned and a tenant just disappears it's bizarre it's not like you've just jacked up the rent, nothing like that like tenants will just some of them will just just disappear in the middle of the night and leave their house behind. And now you've got to try and go through an abandoned title process, take title to the house, fix it up. And then we again, put it back out on rent to own agreements to have a new family move into that fixed up house. So that's a little bit about the way homes work. And then most of our parks, when we buy them, we'll have also say between 5 and 10% vacant pads. So that's just the parking space, so to speak, for the mobile home. We'll go out and buy either new or used mobile homes, later model you or brand new homes obviously in that case help create some jobs at those factories bring in those new houses and again expand the supply of affordable housing that's a little bit about the way the the homes work title trades a little differently but it is usually sort of some of those homes are appended to our real estate purchase and sale contract when we acquire the property and again we'll then buy other homes and bring them in
1: so in an ideal mobile home acquisition you really just want the land beneath the trailers you ideally don't want to acquire a bunch of mobile homes is that right
2: That's correct. We think of this as a parking lot business in the long run. We want folks to own their own houses. We want to own the land underneath.
1: Yeah, sure. Now, I've looked at some mobile home parks myself before Jefferson, and some of the things I've experienced are lots of times they're mom and pop owned, mom and pop managed, mom and pop accounted for, right? So accounting records, financial records are sometimes literally like Excel spreadsheets at the best, sometimes back of napkin math, like, oh, Susie in lot one pays, I don't know, 250 and Frank and Lot 2. I think he's current. So I've seen some trouble with trying to get good finance and accounting numbers out of these owners. Has that been your experience?
2: Some, yes. Some of the most mom and poppy of the mom and pops, right, will not have records. Yeah, so that happens. So certainly some folks would just walk away from a deal like that. And I will say it makes it very difficult to get bank financing if all you're showing to a bank is a spiral bound notebook or the proverbial (laughs) cocktail napkin. Like, yeah, I collected 7,500 in rent this month.
1: In cash, by the way, no bank records.
2: Yeah, trust me, this cocktail napkin is accurate. It was 7500 in rent. So that killed, frankly, bad record keeping will probably as often as not kill a deal because really your only path forward then is to if you've got all cash and you're willing to take some risk and do some elbow work and knock on doors, talk to tenants, send estoppel letters and really verify that the tenants are there, that the cash flow is there. But if you as a buyer can get comfortable with that, and if you're in a position to pay all cash. Now I am, but I'm somewhat larger. I'm I'm nowhere near the biggest in this business, but I'm certainly larger than a lot of other folks. But I would be in a position to pay all cash for a park, obviously subject to, to a good amount of due diligence and then run it for a year. I always run my businesses. Honestly, we use rent manager. We have outside accountants. We collect every penny. We report every penny. We pay our taxes in full. But after doing that for a year, now I can go to a bank and say, hey, here's all the bank statements. We even ran the business through your bank. You saw the gazintas and the gazoutas. You saw the money come in. You saw the expenses go out. You know how much money the property makes. It's been a year. I've seasoned this. I've run it professionally. Now write me a mortgage against it and let me borrow my money back out. So that's an option. Or if you don't have that much capital, a lot of sellers wouldn't be willing to do kind of a rent to own agreement, but that would be another way to try and run the business legitimately for a year, say, if you could just put down something less than a rent to own agreement or lease option agreement for the whole park from the seller. Again, a lot of sellers aren't going to want to do that. That's another option. You really need to have a year's worth of actual deposits into a bank, a real PL before uh, most banks would be willing to, to lend you money.
1: Yeah, sure. Now, because of the nature of a mobile home park, having these two different kind of assets, one being the land, two being the mobile homes, there's some nuances in analyzing the finances of a mobile home park. So do you have any kind of metrics or rules of thumb you're looking at when first kind of giving a a park a once over financial analysis, any kind of benefits or tidbits there?
2: properties uh, generally, I think, not just mobile home parks, but properties generally can be a little bit like children or like people. They have different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses. So it's hard to say like, hey, I'm uh, going to be exactly this kind of parent with all of my multiple kids, or I'm going to be exactly this kind of friend with all of my friends. The properties are different. So cap rate is important, but not the only thing. We could certainly pay a lower cap rate. That is, a higher price for a property that has more upside. That upside could be uh, rents. It could be putting water meters on the houses to bill for water and stop some leaks. It could be just vacant pads where we can buy houses and bring them in and improve the cash flow. Or again, vacant houses just sitting there in a community that a previous mom and pop owner didn't get around to fixing. But like, hey, here's seven or eight homes and for five grand a piece, we can increase the cash flow. Who Knows, maybe a home note and uh, and the lot rent might be six hundred bucks. Get all your money back at six hundred a month for investing five grand in a house. You're going to get all your money back in less than a year, and then keep selling the house for another couple of years, and then collect some lot rent beyond. Anyway, so it, it depends a lot on on the upside. There are other parts that I see at high cap rates, very low prices, but uh, they might be in a floodplain. The infrastructure might be really bad, like failing septic, or heaven forbid, sewage lagoon or packaging plant. So again, the Properties have uh, different personalities, if you will, and they all have different potentials the way all of us do as people.
1: I like the analogy you draw there. That makes a lot of sense. Well, instead of quantitative features, what about qualitative features, what you're looking for in a park? Like, for example, maybe paved drives versus non-paved drives or city water versus well water, things like that. Any kind of thing you're looking for there?
2: Yeah, in general, we're going to look for parks on all city utilities, city water, city sewer. City sewer is the more important of the two. If the back end of your water system fails, you could easily, I'd say, be looking at least at three grand per house to replace a septic or a sewage lagoon or a packaging plant. Might be closer to 10 grand, depending on the infrastructure. Whereas digging a well deeper or filtering the water better, if there's some sort of contaminant, usually that's more like on the of hundreds of dollars per house to fix a water system, the front end of your water system. So again, if we have to pick, and so far everything we've bought, at least with shareholder money, has been all city utilities. But if I had to pick, I'd pick city sewer if I had to give up one or the other. Anyway, but yeah, we look for that city water, city sewer. We also ideally like to buy parks within about five miles of a super Walmart. Walmart tends to do their demographic and economic research pretty well. If you're in a town with a super Walmart, and specifically if you're with about five miles of it, that's generally bodes well. We'll still run test ads and do a lot of other diligence. But we're just looking initially at a deal and doing a screen, just sitting there and and saying, hey, is it all city utilities? Is it within five miles of a super Walmart? And then third, is it in a town where the average house price is more than $100,000? When we've got all that going, that almost always means that the test ads are going to do well. And that can certainly be a good deal. So that last item of filter out house price keeps us out of places like Youngstown, Ohio and Toledo, Ohio and Detroit and Michigan, Flint, Michigan, places like that where the average house price is like 60000 It's just tough to compete with site-built houses that are priced that low, G- generally looking for the average house in that metro to be hundred grand or more.
1: Yeah, those are the metrics I find interesting. And I really appreciate your Walmart metric there, which I think is really interesting. I can appreciate that because being from small town, in Western Oklahoma, we consider it a big town if the town has a Walmart, right? So I know where you're coming from there. Now, when we're talking about value add opportunities in a mobile home park, what are value add opportunities if you just own the land and the infrastructure? Like how do you fix that up? How do you improve that? Right.
2: So it varies. A lot of these parks haven't been repaved maybe since they were built back in the 60s or 70s. So a lot of the parks can be at least partially repaved or you can do some pretty significant pothole repair. So that's obviously making an improvement. We've seen for a couple of the parks that have pools or clubhouses, sometimes those are in disrepair or have some amount of deferred maintenance. We'll also go in and sometimes we just paint houses that we don't even own. We'll just make it a gift to our tenants. Obviously, we're painting then typically the older homes that may well be showing their age. But we'll just go and repaint it. And a fresh coat of paint and some nice contrasting paint on the trim can do wonders for the appearance of a home and therefore the park as a whole. Especially if you have a park, as one of ours did in the Tulsa metro, where there was a fairly dilapidated old house on like the number one spot right up front by the entrance. Was the very first thing people saw going into that park. So we got it painted. Anyway, so we can do that sort of thing. We also, there are also some sort of softer issues, so to speak, or, or not physical issues to improving some of these parks. Some parks will unfortunately have gang activity, drug activity, sex offenders, disrespectful tenants. Usually it's a dude playing his stereo at 3am on his front porch, rocking out to let these parks have that guy. And you'd be amazed what it'll do for a park when you get rid of gang activity or a known sex offender or somebody just being that disrespectful. Then all of a sudden, you have what I call a Jake curve there is not named after me, (laughs) occupancy will dip and then presumably on the backside, you'll be higher than before. But if you're willing to go through a J curve and deal with a little higher vacancy while you get rid of some difficult uh, folks in your park, then your remaining folks, usually most of them are good, they'll start referring their friends. It just becomes a lot easier than to build up your community, bring in new houses, newer used if you do have vacant pads. And then also installing water meters on the houses both helps encourage conservation it's also the only way you as the park owner are going to know if you've got leaks on your side of the meters if you're getting a master if it's master metered park and you're getting a bill for 8 thousand a month in water and all the houses only add up to 6 thousand in usage then you know you've got about two thousand in leaks between your master meter and those individual houses so putting water meters on again encourages conservation on the part of the tenants but it also really highlights often that we as park owners have got leaks and we'll go out and get that fixed. And saving water is what's right for the environment. It's obviously also what's right for all of our pocketbooks, tenants and landlord alike. So nice when what's right for the environment also lines up with what's right for your pocketbooks. So those are some of the improvements that we will also replace signage and put up a website and other things like that.
1: Yeah, so there are ways to significantly improve value and and provide opportunities to improving the way this park is performing through little things like you're talking about metering the parks, putting up signage, even going in and doing things like painting these mobile homes that you as the park owner don't even own just to improve the morale and have those owners take pride in the park and be proud to live there and keep it up. And of course, the management piece, right? Always an opportunity there to uh, manage a bit better. Now, let's talk about that. How does one manage a mobile home park?
2: Almost all our communities have an on-site manager. That's again, somebody that lives in the community. We'll be looking to hire somebody that owns their own house, as most of these folks do. And we'll look typically for somebody that has one of the nicest houses in the community. That means they're clearly have pride of ownership. So we've got that person on site collecting rents, calling in the plumber to deal with sewer unstops, calling the mower to get the place mowed, that that sort of thing. But we'll then also have usually a regional manager overseeing that person. Another set of eyes making sure that they're actually enforcing the rules. Is all the grass cut? Is the junk picked up around the houses? That sort of thing. And then we've got somebody at headquarters that specifically also our accounts receivable person. And she also checks to make sure that all the rent is coming in. So it's not just the manager saying, yes, I collected from everybody, but it's again, also our accounts receivable person double checking all those deposits into the bank. And we make you know other extended use of technology. We love Dropbox. We'll have uh, a manager just go and drive through a park with their phone, their camera pointed out the window, just videoing the condition of the park. We still get on site a couple times a year at least. But uh, again, we can also have that manager take a good video of the park and upload that into Dropbox. And it's almost as good as being there. So we we do that use of technology as well.
1: Yeah, that's interesting and really unique points there. Now, when we're talking about maybe more of like a 30,000 foot view of mobile home parks, how has this asset class performed in comparison to say multifamily, single family, say storage units in recent history? Do you have any kind of metrics or ideas there?
2: Yes. So it's my understanding, I can't quote you the exact... It's my understanding that within the world of all of the REITs, these publicly traded real estate investment trusts, these publicly traded stocks that invest in real estate, and of course, they invest in all sorts of things, hotels, seniors, uh, housing, self-storage, multifamily, on and on. My understanding that over about the last 15 or 20 years, that the three mobile home park REITs, there's just three of them, that those three have performed the best out of all of those sectors.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And you hear a lot of times that mobile home parks are quote unquote recession proof, right? Because there's only so low somebody can go in the level of housing, right? Like you can live in a high end luxury mansion. You can live in a single family home or maybe an A-class A class apartment and a B class, C class or mobile home park. But you've eventually got to have somewhere to live, right? So in recessions, these mobile home parks are sometimes not very dramatically impacted from what I understand. <laughs> yeah,
2: I went back and looked at the three publicly traded REITs and exactly how they performed during the 09 and 10 housing recession. And they actually had their best quarter ever during the recession. And then they had another best quarter, two back-to-back best quarter evers right during the recession. So on average, the REITs distributed more money. It's FFO, funds from operations, but it's basically dividends. The, The three mobile home park REITs distributed more cash to their investors during the recession than prior. Growth did slow, but it was still positive growth. And then once the recession was over, growth picked up faster. So the large publicly traded REITs did well. Obviously, that's at the high level. Down at the uh, low level, my level, I had just purchased my own first mobile home park out on the south side of Oklahoma City in 07. And so I went right through the 08, 09, 10 housing recession and my occupancy remained between ninety five and a hundred percent every month and I bumped the rents about fifty percent. That was coming off a very low base of one hundred and ten dollars in, in lot rent. I got up to about hundred and fifty five. But at my level, just owning one small park at that time, again, I, I discovered it was a very recession resistant business as well.
1: Well kind of switching gears here a little bit, let's talk about financing how do typically finance mobile home parks.
2: Depends on the size. Larger parks say over Roughly two and a half million in purchase price. If they're fairly full and paved and in good condition, those kind of parks can qualify for agency debt. Fannie and Freddie would write a mortgage on it, and or CMBS—that's collateralized mortgage backed securities. That's where it's sort of the your payments are diced up on Wall Street and, and sold off to investors. So those are a couple of options for larger deals, roughly under two and a half. I'd say certainly under two million. You're looking principally at bank debt or seller carry. Just get the seller to, to be their own mortgage company and let you pay them out on overtime rather than uh, getting money from a bank and then paying back the bank over time. Just tell them, I'll put down 20% and pay you the remaining 80 over the next 30 years or whatever. Those are kind of the four basic food groups of debt, agency, CMBS, bank, and seller carry.
1: When talking about seller carry, or seller financing, how successful are you with that? How often do you see that working out for both you and the seller?
2: I'm not very successful at that. I try and talk sellers into doing it because it really does have good benefits for them. Principally, it converts the transaction into an installment sale. So they don't pay a lot of taxes right up front. If I put down, say, 25%, they have quote unquote only sold me 25% of the park at closing. They only pay one quarter of their total tax bill. Then they pay a bit more as I keep paying them out over time. I pay them a good interest rate on their money. But you'd be surprised how many of these folks just don't get it. They just want a pile of cash. And then they put it in the bank. They pay all that tax. And then of what remains, they put that in the bank, which now earns, I don't know, a percent and a half or something, maybe two is what banks Uh, are paying. I would have paid them more than that if they had left their money in the deal. But a lot of sellers are mom and pop. They don't understand financing. They just want... We're all creatures of habit. I've got my own limitations, believe me. But a lot of these sellers really are are very limited in their understanding of financing. They just want to pile of cash and they're quote unquote happy to pay any amount of tax and accept any low rate of return from a bank just to get that pile of cash. That's usually what we do with sellers. We're usually not able to convince them and really educate them about the benefits of taking back a note on a property that they own themselves and know very well. And if we blow up, they just take the property right back, they run it again and sell it to someone else. There's very, very little downside for most sellers to take back seller carry. It's just not where their mindset uh, typically
1: is. Yeah, sure. That can be the key to just trying to enlighten, educate that seller on the benefits of this, right? And sometimes you just can't successfully do that or they're just not in the position where they can. So when it works out, great, but low strike right there. Yep. Well, Jefferson, for the audience members that are out there listening, maybe that investor who's interested in learning more about mobile home park investing or thinks they might be interested in you know possibly buying a mobile home park, what advice would you have for that person?
2: So first, do some diligence and decide if this is what you want to do on your own, which means you're going to run the park, you're going to man- probably manage the manager, maybe you're going to even be the manager yourself, but you're at least going to manage the manager and you're going to take care of all this... Government issues and complaints, and you're going to put the ads up on Facebook and Craigslist. You're really going to run the property. What's your time worth? Or do you maybe want to invest in a fund such as mine? I'll give me myself a little shameless plug here. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Would you rather take less of a return, but have your time back and really have a truly passive return? I find, frankly, a lot of people say, "Oh, I'll go for the higher return myself." These are easy to run, and then these people come back to me six months later, and they're like like, so is your fund still open? Can I just write you a check? (laughs) Anyway, so that's really the first thing. Figure out what's your time worth. Do you really want to own and operate a park? Or do you want to partner with someone like me who has uh, greater expertise? I don't know everything, but I have greater expertise than first-time buyers. And again, folks can then uh, sit back and make a truly passive investment with a mobile home park fund.
1: Yeah, sure. I guess that's a decision every investor has to ask himself in any yeah. asset class, mobile home park, single family, etc. It's like, what level of involvement do you want to have in this, right? Do you want to be the one picking up phone calls and answering questions from tenants and managing deals and hiring contractors and all that goes with it? Or would you rather have a more passive approach? And if that's the case, then yeah, someone like yourself is a great partner in that situation. Well, Jefferson, hey, it's been a lot of fun kind of just picking your brain, talking to you about mobile home parks. It's not an asset class that we hear a lot about, especially in the world of real estate investing. Of Obviously, that's not the case with yourself, right? That's what you eat, sleep and breathe. But to a lot of people, it's a new thing, maybe a little bit of a, an unknown. So really interesting to kind of hear your take. Now, as we're wrapping up here, we've got a lightning round, just a series of questions we ask every one of our guests. Are you up for it? Fire away, Jacob. <laughs> All right. Well, the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that?
2: I think I unfortunately was working a day job. I was distracted with that. And even from the time I first discovered mobile home parks, I frankly got distracted also buying a new car. So for me, just to carve out the time around my job and other social schedule to really be looking for parks was a hurdle. I think I put that behind me now. And again, I do this full time. But uh, just having the discipline to remain focused on the goal of finding the right kind of property to buy was an initial hurdle.
1: And what that look like where you just carving out time every week, every day to just kind of stay focused, put your head down, look at deals or what?
2: Yeah. Usually I think on Saturdays and then just frankly feeling a bit guilty about having the new car and still having no real
1: estate. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And I started taking it more seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jefferson, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success?
2: I uh, am trying to improve on this one, which is to simply hire other people to help me do various different things. could be sourcing deals, managing the properties, advertising some of those proverbial vacant homes up on Facebook and Craigslist. I am constantly struggling to make myself irrelevant to my business. This is a big mind shift from having formerly been an employee. For other folks for 20 years, where I was always trying to make myself as relevant as possible to the business to obviously have job security. I think when you're an entrepreneur of most any kind, you need to focus on the opposite, make yourself irrelevant, hire other people that do all that actually better than you do. And then your business runs and grows, and you can work more on your business, than in your business. So, anyway, that's, uh, I've done I mean, so far, I've got fuller part time, about roughly 30 people working for me. So, there's no way I could do it without all those folks.
1: Thank you all. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Shout out. Well, Jefferson, do you have an online resource that you find valuable in your day to day?
2: One good one actually is bestplaces.net. That's a website to go and get a bunch of demographic information on cities and towns. So for instance, when I mentioned earlier that I'm looking to buy a property in a metro where the average house price is 100000 or more, I can go to bestplaces.net and just put in that city and it has that information and much more. So that's a very good one no matter what kind of real estate you're in. Bestplaces.net helps you understand more about how price, employment, population, size, growth, occupancy versus vacancy of the housing stock. There's just a wealth of information there.
1: Awesome. Great. Yeah, it's a new one to me. So we'll link that in the show notes if our audience members want to check that out. Now, Jefferson, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why?
2: I'm a big fan of uh, The Snowball. A book is called Snowball. It's a biography on Warren Buffett. And yes, Buffett did buy Clayton Homes, which was and is the largest manufacturer of mobile homes. But that's just mentioned in a couple of pages of that book. That book is a very good book on investing broadly. And it shows, frankly, some of the sacrifices and trade-offs that Warren Buffett made vis-a-vis his family time versus his work time. And I'm not sure I would have made all the decisions as Buffett but anyway, that's a particularly good biography that just helps, I think, open the doors to folks' eyes about how to be a good investor, no matter what you invest in. And again, some of the trade-offs versus our personal lives. So I'd recommend Snowball.
1: Awesome. Great. Yeah. We'll link that book in the show notes if our audience members want to check that out. Last question in our lightning round, Jefferson, if you were to give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you go back and tell yourself?
2: probably do substantially the same things just sooner so i waited until i was in my late 30s to buy my first piece of real estate before that i was investing in the stock market both for better and for worse i'm a bigger and bigger fan again of hard assets real estate generally obviously i like mobile home parks but just in general getting away from paper assets at least at current valuations we'll see if we have a great collapse another great depression or a great recession that might re- Reset prices in the stock market. I might like the stock market a little better if it was trading at a third of what it is now.
1: Sure, yeah. (laughs) That's not
2: my prediction, but I'm speaking hypothetically if it if it were to fall that far. But absent that kind of great pricing reset in the public markets, then again, I'm a big fan of real estate. And I just want to buy probably the same thing, mobile home parks, just try and get started sooner. And I also had to get this was another thing that held me back. Once I did get into real estate, I really viewed myself as a value investor. Obviously, no we near Warren Buffett's league and skills, but I do try and follow his teachings to the best of my limited abilities. But by thinking of myself just as an as an individual value investor, I was not, for instance, actively looking to raise outside capital the way I am now. And that held me back. I only had so much capital. So I, I still would have started, I think, with my own money, built up a track record. But instead of waiting like six or seven years and just buying a couple parks on my own, I probably would have raised outside capital and started buying parks sooner with outside capital. And really, I guess where I'm going with this is I've changed my view of myself or my outlook from being an individual value investor to being a money manager. So I now help manage other people's money. We split the profits. I do all the work. I guarantee the bank debt personally, myself with my own house, two cars, modest stock portfolio, much to my wife's chagrin or dismay. (laughs) But to me, that that feels it's a profitable way to work. Again, where I'm helping other people invest in this space, I take on the workload and the deal structuring activities. But again, I view myself now as a money manager rather than specifically as my own value investor just for my own capital base.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, it's not surprising, Jefferson, that this is not your very first time to talk behind a mic about mobile homes as you actually host a mobile home investing podcast called the Mobile Home Park Investor Podcast. So tell us a little bit about that, what you discussed there, and what audience members could expect if they go over there and give that a listen.
2: Yeah, so they can find it maybe most easily just by going to Mobile Home Park Investors. That's plural, Mobile Home mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. And that'll link you through to iTunes and Stitcher where you can find it. Also link you into my group on LinkedIn. Same name, Mobile Home Park Investors. We've got almost 5,000 folks on LinkedIn trading tips and asking questions. And I also publish the industry's calendar of events. You can download that connect your phone right into it all from mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. But we've had a range of content. So I started off just talking through my own experiences buying mobile home parks. I then ended up doing... I've done I don't know 120 some odd podcasts. We've had a range of guests on, including Jim Clayton, the founder of Clayton Mobile Homes that he sold to Warren Buffett for about a billion six. So we've had, I think... Jim's roughly a billionaire. We've had a billionaire on the podcast. We've had uh, another gentleman on who designs mobile home parks. We've had some other investors on just talking about how they got started buying parks and what's gone well and what's not gone well for them with their first and second acquisitions. Then we've had on some real estate brokers, some mortgage brokers. We've had on a number of Wall Street analysts. Some of these guys that follow those big three publicly traded REITs. We've had a number of Wall Street guys on and several others, but just check it out, mobilehomeparkinvestors.com.
1: Yeah, great. So if our audience members are interested in kind of learning more, starting to dip their feet in the world of mobile home parks, certainly go check that podcast out. We'll link it in the show notes. Well, Jefferson, as we're wrapping up here, if our audience members want to learn any more about what you're doing, connect with you, reach out to you, where's the best place for them to do that?
2: Yeah, the website for my uh, partnership is simply park. Avenue partners.com Again, it's plural, parkavenuepartners.com. I believe right on the home page, right at the bottom, you can just write me a note and click send. There is, again, a, a range of information there. I go through in greater detail the investment thesis, why I like this business. I do have a recorded webinar there as well. And then also the private placement memorandum and a nice and easy click to invest button. If somebody were to choose to invest, I certainly urge anybody to read the private placement memorandum, ask any and all questions first. But all that and more is there at parkavenuepartners.com. And again, you can ping me right off the form right at the bottom of the homepage.
1: Awesome, Jefferson. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks for your time on the podcast today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you and just seeing your journey and talking about this asset class. So, well, as we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with our audience members or maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't?
2: Yes, this just came to mind. So the advice for anybody listening is if you know of an off-market mobile home park, I do pay referral fees, more than 100 grand cumulatively and counting. So if you'd like a chunk of change in your pocket and you know about an off-market mobile home park, i.e. there's no real estate broker involved, please give me a call. I would love to help you make a little money and, and buy a park off-market.
1: There you go. Great. Well, Jefferson, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of pleasure. Look forward to having you back on in the future.
2: Okay, Jacob. Thanks. And great to be with you today.
1: Thank you, Jefferson. Take care. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Jefferson Lilly. Hey, I hope you're getting value from these shows. If you like what you heard, please go over and leave a rating and review on whichever platform you're listening on. It would mean so much to the show. And hey, if you have any questions about anything we talked about in today's conversation with Jefferson, feel free to either reach out to him or myself. You can find all of those resources we mentioned in the show notes today. So as always, if you have any questions or comments or want to reach out to me, feel free to do so. I love hearing from you. I love talking with you and learning about what you're doing. So you can do that at www.jacobairs.com Till next week, engineer
0: the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire.